Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church, where we believe all people are icons of the invisible God, made in His image to reflect His glory and grace. For more information, go to iconchurch.org. Well, it is good to be here with you all. Good to have you. Um, we are continuing in our series in First Corinthians. Uh, before we do that, it is Father's Day, and um, we uh, wanted to take just a moment to uh, at least recognize uh, the fathers. We gave uh, flowers to the moms just a few weeks ago, and uh, as I was thinking, like, what could we give the dads? And uh, and and uh, the gift I'm going to give to the dads uh, this more this evening is to not have you stand up. Uh, so you, you are welcome. <laughs> uh, so that, that is the gift. So I'm getting thumbs up uh, from a lot of you guys, so I think I picked wisely. Um, but uh, I, I, I would just say, you know, I am a dad, uh, have a dad, and uh, my dad was such an enormous part of my life, still is an enormous part of my life, uh, and, and shaped me uh, in ways that I uh, continue to uh, learn. Uh, that I, I couldn't have even known as a, a younger guy. And we've, uh, he and I have always had a, a really good relationship uh, and I've always looked up to him a great deal. So uh, I, I feel like he set a high standard for me when, uh, with my kids. And uh, so I, I think as uh, both the, the son of a great father and uh, the father of great kids, uh, I, I have a, uh, I think a sober-minded uh, value and uh, feel a weight uh, around fatherhood that's, uh, that's really good and, and uh, important. So this is a, this is a big day uh, for all of you. So men who are here and you are fathers, uh, thank you. Uh, for your hard work, uh, we have uh, we have a model that was given to us, uh, a role model that is the Father uh, in heaven, and uh, that has always been kind of one of those uh, is that a wise thing, God kind of things for me. Uh, given the amount of brokenness, uh, the amount of bad fathers and and absentee fathers and abusive fathers that the world knows, um, for God to identify Himself as Father, I know is a massive stumbling block for a lot of people um, that they think, gosh, if God's like a father, I know what my father was like, then I want nothing to do with God. And I, and I, I understand that. Um, and and I, I only want you to hear this, that everything you wish your dad had been, that's who God the Father is. And, and he is not, uh, ought not, should not, I hope not, um, understood in view of our father, but that we should see our fathers uh, as uh, in view of God that we would be able to look at them and say, gosh, I, I know that this is who God has put in my life to, to kind of be in this role for me. Um, but in whatever ways your father has failed you, and they have. Like, I always think about uh, and ask my wife, like, which ways do you think we're messing up our kids? Like, it's just, it's just a question of which ones are we choosing? Because uh, uh, we all are, are doing that in one way or the other. Um, but then I, I hope we would give our fathers grace uh, not because they deserve it, but because uh, all the other paths lead down to despair, and and that we would uh, we would pray for our fathers and hope and wish and act uh, in in such a way that would uh, that would kind of bestow the grace of God upon them because they are in desperate need of it. So, um, thank you, fathers. Uh, keep up the good work, uh, and remember that we are in many ways a picture 
for our children of what God in heaven is. And that's just a, it's a weight we'll never bear. And so I'm thankful for the grace of God. Amen. We um, are continuing in 1 Corinthians. Uh, this week will be in 1 Corinthians 7. Um, I want to back up just a little bit from, uh, from the passage that's in front of us because uh, last week we talked about uh, marriage and Paul lays out uh, some, some things for us to think about when it comes to marriage. Uh, he transitions at the end of chapter 7 to be talking about singleness, um, but really in all of chapter 7, he kind of goes back and forth. So I actually want to start in the passage that we looked at uh, last week, but one of the, one of the great things, I, I typically plan out my sermons uh, a year in advance or so, and uh, one of the advantages that gives me is um, I'm kind of always aware of what's coming up, and so thinking about those things, and uh, my wife and I got a date night uh, the, this, this last week, and it was like a midweek, uh, early, usually our date nights are, uh, you know, like on the obscure Tuesday night when no one else wants to do anything at, at like 10, right, but we get to go out at six o'clock uh, on a Thursday and it was fun and people were out and it was sunny and we went to this rooftop Mexican place down here that was super fun and I was easily the oldest person on the rooftop uh, which was which was uh, a little awkward but uh, uh, I felt like I was just ruining it for everyone you know that was there um, like, oh, whose dad is here right you know um, but uh, it, it was interesting knowing that I had this uh, sermon on singleness uh, come up, and it's just surrounded by uh, single people, uh, young single people in their 20s and 30s. And, uh, and, and so, you know, I'm, I'm uh, watching them. And, uh, and listening to their conversations and obviously like paying really close attention to my wife as well because uh, we're on a date, uh, but uh, trying to also kind of be aware. And I thought, you know, um, I, I, I was looking at it and I told, my, I told them and I said, you know, I get this. I get this whole situation and I, I get why it's fun, but I, I don't miss it. You know, like I don't miss the the game and the insecurity of it and the 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 fear and the posturing and all of the stuff that was going on all around me. And I just thought like I this is I get it, but I don't miss it. And and I started to think about the fact that um, of of all of the people on on that uh, rooftop, uh, statistics tell us that probably about 80 percent of them will at one point get married. Right, uh, and statistics. In fact, the Pew Research uh, Group just did a, a big marriage and singleness thing just a couple years ago, and uh, and the average for all genders is eighty percent. So eighty percent of people will get married, uh, but it's different male to female. So uh, in, in terms of the like never married, twenty three percent of men uh, will never marry, and about seventeen percent of women uh, will never marry, which is interesting. And they did this uh, little bit of a kind of questionnaire thing where they asked men and women what they were looking. For. Like, why aren't you uh, married yet? And, you know, it just kind of gave them a chance to answer that. And uh, it was interesting, the number one reason or the number one thing that men and women were looking for in a spouse uh, was interesting to me. The number one thing that women looked for in a spouse, 72% was the highest uh, kind of box checked, was a, a steady job. Uh, in in the, the man that they were hoping to marry, that uh, they were really looking for steady work, which, you know, that's very practical of them. I appreciate that. Uh, the, for men, was interesting, 62%, the highest percentage for men, was uh, shared values around having and raising children, 
was the number one, uh, number one choice, which I can only assume means like, hey, we want the same amount, right? Like somewhere between zero and one, right? Like is that kind of what we're on board with? So uh, uh, all of that was kind of interesting to me. And then being in that place and trying to think, I, you know, I, I have this problem of thinking like a preacher when I'm in public. And, uh, and so I'm watching them just thinking like, what, is it, what do they want? And I'm listening to the conversations on our left and right. And it's just, you know, single people flirting with each other and uh, poorly. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so it was interesting to me just to think through like, what do, they, what do they want? What are they looking for? What kind of questions are they asking each other? And what are they learning about each other? Um, and how might that point to kind of what they're looking for and what they want out of life? And so I'm, you know, overanalyzing the whole thing. Um, but what's interesting to me about that compared to what we're going to talk about tonight is um, kind of the presupposition. Paul's presupposition, and you have to know this anytime you read the scriptures, Paul's presupposition is that the most important thing for you, and, and that's all of you, this is the highest value, the, the point of your existence, the reason for which you exist, your calling in life, all of that is wrapped up into one thing, and that is you growing in your relationship to God and being changed by God into the person that he made you to be. That is the number one most important thing. Like it's more important than your career. It's more important than your love life. It's more important than anything. It is literally the most important thing to Paul. In his mind, you were created in such a way to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That that's, that's the truest thing about you, that you are made in the image of God, made to reflect his glory and grace, as we talk about here at Icon. And so uh, there, there are five things in this passage that I, I want to talk about uh, with regard to singleness. But I would just say this beforehand, like none of it makes sense if the, uh, your, your kind of goal in life is something other than being who God made you to be by means of relationship with him. Because that's Paul's starting point. So everything he's going to say about singleness has kind of that, that lens in mind that singleness is X, Y, and Z because there's nothing more important in the world than you becoming who God made you to be. And that happens through relationship with him. So you may totally disagree with that presupposition and that's, that's fine. I'm glad you're here if you disagree with that presupposition. But you just gotta know that's Paul's, that's where Paul starts. Like that's where the gospel starts. That's where Christianity starts is that everything in your life, though it matters, it matters less than you becoming who you were made to be through relationship with God, okay? So we gotta start kinda there. And so in this passage, there's five things that I want to pull out um, that, that Paul talks about what singleness is and, and therefore kind of what singleness isn't. Okay, so number one, in verse seven, we're going to go backwards to last week a little bit. Verse seven, Paul says this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So if you remember last week uh, when we were talking about marriage, um, we kind of pointed out that this, this little section of Paul's letter um, doesn't have like the highest view of marriage. We'll, we'll, we'll get into that uh, in a moment. But that marriage is good, but it's not the ultimate thing, right? Like it's not the end for which you were created necessarily, right? Like it's a good thing, but it's not the ultimate thing. And, and I think sometimes we come to a passage like this one where it says, hey, uh, I wish, you know, Paul literally says, I wish you were all single like I am, but, you know, each person has their own gift. And 
and what in kind of Christian circles, if you're not a Christian and you're here, super glad, super glad you're here. Um, but if you didn't grow up in Christianity at all, um, there's kind of an inside joke, and, and most Christian inside jokes aren't super funny, just to be clear. Um, but there's kind of a Christian inside joke that um, people will say like, oh, I don't have the gift of singleness, so... I need to get married, right? Like, or, you know, they'll, they'll you know, maybe be getting a little bit beyond what most people might be. No, I'm not even gonna say that. They just want to be married. Let's just say it that way. And, uh, and, and that comes out of this passage where Paul says, listen, not everybody has the same gift. Some people have the gift of marriage and some people have the gift of singleness. But I think that's a really wrong way to think about this. And in fact, not at all what Paul means when he says uh, the gift of marriage. So two things about this. One is if you are single, you have the gift of singleness. Like singleness is the gift, you realize. So this is not as if you're saying like, I have this kind of some, this aura calledness of singleness that will live into perpetuity. And so because I don't have the gift of singleness, therefore this moment when I am actually single is just like a transition period to when I can really be who I'm made to be because right now I am single, but I don't have the gift of singleness. That's not a thing. Singleness is the gift. It's been granted to you right now that you have singleness, okay? So that ought to change our perspective a little bit, and Paul's gonna go into more detail about what that gift entails. But instead of us saying like, well, I don't have the gift of singleness, therefore this is just kind of, you can kind of disregard this season as just a a hallway between rooms, right? Like a, 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 a transition to being married. No, like the fact that you're single and all of the freedom that that entails and the opportunity that entails that we'll get into here in a moment, that is the gift. So raise your hand if you're single. Come on, own it, just own it. You never know what comes of this opportunity. Raise your hand high. Like, who knows who sees you right now? Like, you could come back to this moment and be like, you know what? We met when I went like this. And, and she did too, and we bumped elbows. So the, you have the gift of singleness right now. And maybe someday, likely statistically, you will lose that gift. It will be taken from you and it will be exchanged for the gift of marriage. But right now you have the gift of singleness and you need to embrace that. Because here's the second thing about gift. Every single time the word gift or the idea of gift is used in the New Testament, and it's used a lot, gifts are always, hear me, they are always for the sake of God, God's people, his kingdom, and for the good of those around you. Or as we say here at Icon, the king, the kingdom, and the common good. That gift of singleness has been given to you for a purpose. To glorify God in your singleness. To, as we say, love the king. To seek the kingdom that you would use your singleness on behalf of the kingdom of God for the sake of the kingdom of God. That you would, in your singleness, display the gospel. In, in ways that we'll, again, talk about in detail, but that you have this opportunity to display the gospel in a unique way that I, as a married person, do not have that opportunity. This is a gift, but it's not a gift for you. As we say often, like grace, the grace of God was never meant to terminate on us. The grace of God is meant to pass through us, to change us, to transform us for the sake of 
God's glory for the good of his kingdom and to serve the common good that we have as single people, you have as single people, hours in your day and flexibility in your life that I simply do not have anymore and it ought to be used for the king, the kingdom and the common good. That's what gifts are for. When Paul talks about spiritual gifts, they are always for glorifying God, building up the body, and for the sake of the common good. Your singleness is a gift, and it's not a gift primarily for you. It's a gift for God, God's people, and the city. Number two, singleness is preparation not expectation. So some of the hardest verses we looked at last week apply to single people. So if you go back to chapter seven, verse four, Paul says something very controversial. He says, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And again, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Right, So we talked about the mutuality that we enter into in marriage, that the the covenant of marriage is a covenant of giving away authority over yourself and your own life. And again, in verses 10 and 11, he says, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. We talked about how that is partially also reflective of the power dynamics at this time where the most a wife could do legally was to separate from her husband. Only the husband in Roman culture had the power to actually divorce the wife. And so Paul is, you can kind of hear his sensitivity to what's happening in the culture as well. But here's what I want you to hear as uh, as single people. If this is what God's vision for marriage is, One, that it is a giving over of authority over your own life to another person, that you're entrusting your life and your body to another person by your own choice, and that in God's vision that that is an eternal arrangement. What's that mean? Well, one, it means you you should probably be pretty choosy about the person you enter into that kind of relationship with. So um, I, I work out of a co-working space uh, just a couple blocks away, and I love it. Uh, it just puts me in the mix of everybody and everything. And um, half the co-working space at night turns into a lounge, which is just so much cooler than I am. But I uh, occasionally sit in there and uh, was in there a couple months back and uh, sitting between two groups of people and, uh, and listening to their conversations. Are we picking up on a theme here? <laughs> Never sit by me in a bar. <laughs> um, and I'm listening to their conversations, and uh, the conversation to my right is three young people and uh, two, two young women and a younger guy, and they're talking about what they look for in, uh, in, in an other, right, in a partner. And, uh, and they're talking, and it's, I, I can't help but listen because I'm just, it's just a, it's a sermon illustration waiting to happen case in point. And, uh, and so I'm listening to them talk about it and disagree and agree. And what they landed on was um, uh, money and sexual chemistry. That's what they were looking for. And they all kind of went, yeah, that's, that's pretty much uh, what we're looking for. Which feels so cliche that I have sat on that illustration for months and months because it felt too obvious to me to actually be able to use. But that was literally the conversation that was happening to my right. 
here's the problem with that. If what marriage is, is entering into the kind of relationship by which you give up rights to yourself to another person, and that that arrangement isn't all of your life, for your whole life kind of an arrangement, then I would submit to you that money and sexual chemistry are not very good reasons to marry a person. Because just because someone is rich and you have sexual chemistry with them does not qualify them to run your life. Does not qualify them to be responsible over you. And so when we talk about being choosy, that doesn't just mean holding out for the best looking option or the wealthiest option or the whatever, but it's understanding this is the arrangement that I'm entering into. I had better choose someone that I can willingly entrust my life to. Right, so um, we get hung up on Ephesians uh, 5 often uh, because uh, Paul asks wives to submit to their husbands. And I reminded you last week that if ever a husband was to say such a thing to their wife and say, submit wife or something, that the wife should then respond biblically and say, die, husband, because that's what Paul tells husbands. Husbands should lay down their lives for their wives. And so if we're gonna play that game, let's play it all the way out, right? So... (laughs) So this is, the, this is the idea that husbands ought to choose a wife that they are willing to die for. And wives choose a husband that they would be willing to submit to because they trust their character. They trust that they are the kind of man that would die for them. And that they would willingly submit, not out of some sort of kind of arrangement, but because out of love and trust. So one, be choosy. Two, be the right kind of choosy. And then three, be choosable. Singleness is about preparation, not expectation. We ought to spend this time becoming the kind of person, if you are a man, becoming the kind of person that a wife would want to submit to because your character is impeccable and that you've demonstrated your willingness to sacrifice and die for her. And that if you are a wife looking for a husband, that you would become the kind of woman that a man would give his life for. Singleness is about preparation. Number three, singleness is a calling and not a season. Verse 17, Paul says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. I think we undervalue verses like that because man would our faith be different if that wasn't the case. Verse 19, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. We'll come back to that one. For he who is called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. 
So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now, first, just because not everybody knows this stuff about uh, slavery at this time, we are not talking about the kind of slavery that we experienced in America at the you know, first hundred and so, hundred or so years of America. It's not the kind of slavery that's going on, evidenced by the fact that Paul not only says, if you are a slave, don't go out of your way to try to free yourself, but also says, if you're free, don't go become a slave, right? Like no one chooses to become a slave in the kind of slavery that we have had here in America. That's not at all what's happening. Bond servanthood, which is, if you have a footnote in your Bible, it probably says, or bond servant. It's just not a word we're as aware of, was essentially uh, kind of, uh, contractually giving yourself to a person and working for them. And, and this was a, a common practice, particularly among the poor, um, as a way to kind of have a life, right? And so Paul is saying the broader idea here is remain, as he says at the very end, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now, when Paul tells us to remain as you are, this is probably the most countercultural idea in this whole section. Because if there is one thing that dominates my kind of pastoral care conversations, it is conversations about change that almost every single person I talk to in a pastoral context is thinking about moving, is thinking about changing jobs, is thinking about changing relationships, is thinking about changing something. The idea of remaining where you are is so foreign to many of our minds because we are always thinking about what's next, what's above us, what are we grasping for, what are we striving for, what's the next gig, what's the next job, what's the next raise, what's the next relationship, what's the next place, what's the next home, what's the next car, what's the next thing. And that is a constant in our world. And it's, it, it's so ingrained in our culture that for most of us, we don't even think about it being something that's wrong or right. It's not a moral thing. It's just a thing. It's just, it's just kind of how things are. It's how the culture is, especially in the tech industry, where it seems like the average kind of job tenure is like 15 minutes. And you're always kind of moving on to the next thing. And Paul says, remain as you are. However you were, whatever condition you were in when you were called, let him remain with God. Why? And especially when it comes to singleness, why? Why would, God, why would Paul, God through Paul, encourage you to remain as you are? Because every other job is a bad idea, because every other relationship is a bad idea, because the job you have is the perfect one, because the relationship you're in is the perfect one, because nobody should ever leave Seattle. No. Because what's happening in here that makes us strive and seek and look and want change is a, a, a we're convinced, there's a conviction in our heart that the next thing is the thing that will satisfy what's going on here. 
that we, we feel this gnawing sense of dissatisfaction with whatever our job or situation or relationships are. And we just think, gosh, I, I think that next thing is the thing that will satisfy. I think it's the next thing that's the thing that will make me not want another thing. But until we can remember that the last thing was the next thing that was supposed to be the thing, and now that thing that was the last thing that was then the thing is now not the next thing anymore. It was the last thing, and it's not good enough. And that you could track that thing back several iterations, and none of them have satisfied. So why is Paul saying remain as you are? And especially if you're here and you're single, that he is encouraging you, remain as you are. Because whatever it is in you that craves the next thing will not be satisfied by that next thing. It just won't. There's not a person, a job, a situation, or a city that can fill the hole in your heart that you're trying to fill. But it speaks to a desire that's real. It speaks to a need that's real. We are just asking the wrong things to fill it. So what did we hear from Paul last week about marriage? Marriage is good. But if you go into marriage trying to be satisfied by it, you will be grossly disappointed. Mar marriage is a good thing. It's not, it's not a bad thing. He, he, he even says, like, you're not sinning if you get married, which is such a foreign concept to most of evangelicalism for the last 50 years. Just the idea that marriage would be a sin. If anything, marriage has been glorified to be the thing that we should all want. And Paul goes, oh, if you get married, it's not a sin. We're like, what? It's like category confusion for us. Paul goes, listen, there, there is something in the human heart that always wants the next thing because we think it's the thing that's going to satisfy us, and it just won't. So if you're single, be, remain. And if a situation comes and it makes sense and it's good and your heart moves and they're, you know, rich and stuff, like, great, go for it. But, but if our hearts aren't content, if our hearts aren't satisfied with our singleness, they will never be satisfied with our marriage. Number four, singleness is an opportunity, not an excuse. Verse 25. It says, now concerning the betrothed, single, unmarried, I have no command from the Lord, but I gave my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean. Brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Before anyone does anything rash, just hold on. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. Now, what does Paul mean by all of that? I'm going to sum it up really quickly. He is saying this is a matter of perspective. 
Live in the world as if the things in the world, the relationships that you have in the world, uh, the, the opportunities you have to trade and do business and all of these things are not the most ultimate thing. One of the things that Paul does all the time, and, and commentators are split whether it was kind of a literary device or if it was a pastoral kind of angle or if he just genuinely believed it, but he writes as if he expected Jesus to come back real soon. We, so we see this, right? Like he talks about the present distress in verse uh, 26. He talks about the appointed time has grown very short in verse 29. This, we don't know exactly. Did Paul actually think Jesus was gonna come back soon? Or was he kind of pastorally going, gosh, we've gotta see the world as if Jesus is coming back soon. Because if we knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, we would cancel a lot of meetings, right? Our perspective would totally change. So instead of having a a kind of completely horizontal view of the world that says like, this is what's most important and what's in front of me is primary, that we would have, the big word would be an eschatological or an end, end of things kind of view that we would see what's in front of us and care for what's in front of us, but only with the perspective of eternity. So they would see that, yeah, this stuff has real value, but it doesn't have ultimate value. What is ultimate is yet to come. Okay, now he gets specific. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and hear this, to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. This is why I told you you have to understand Paul's presupposition. That for Paul and for all of the scriptures, for the gospel, there is nothing more important in life than to become who God made you to be through relationship with him. Nothing. Everything else pales in comparison to that. Your marriage pales in comparison. Your children pale in comparison. Your job, your career, your money, your friendships, your community, your church activity, your everything pales in comparison to becoming who God made you to be by means of relationship with him. That's first and foremost. Are all those things bad, therefore? Of course not. Of course not. But they are secondary. They are secondary. So Paul says, I would free you from the anxiety that having a family brings. I I stay up at night thinking about, I have five children, which means I have an infinite number of concerns because what happens is when you have one kid, they can only get in trouble with themselves, but then there's two kids and they, each of them can make bad decisions. And then there's three kids and then four, and then there's so many kids that there is an infinite number of ways one of them can do a thing that sets all the other ones on fire. And so it's just a constant worry and a constant concern. And so what the world is doing and, and what kind of everything around us is doing is trying to get our attention and in that attention, trying to convince us that their thing is the most valuable thing. And as soon as something becomes valuable to us, whether it's our wife or our kids or our job or our future or our stuff, as soon as something becomes valuable to us, we immediately become fearful of losing that thing. Immediately, 
No one's afraid of losing something they don't value. We only are afraid of losing things we value. And so the, the lie that kind of undergirds all of this is that something else is most valuable and therefore we have to work to hold on to it and to cling to it. And that invokes, evokes in us fear. So Paul says, I would have you be free of these anxieties so that you can focus on the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, how to have undivided attention, undivided devotion to the Lord. Singleness is an opportunity. Paul, I think, is speaking positively, saying that those who are unmarried, the single, all they care about is the things of the Lord. They're not distracted by worldly things. And oh, 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 if that were true. That's why singleness is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to have more of your time and energy devoted to the Lord. And Paul saw it that way. It's why he said, I wish all of you were single so that you were like me who can be so much more devoted to the world, have so many fewer distractions and things that would call your attention and, and tell you about their value. And so you get anxious and fearful and then you focus on them and try to hold on to them as tightly as possible. Last. Singleness is a good, but it's not a God. Verse 36. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, him, uh, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Here's what's interesting to me about that last passage. It's very casual. Paul writes about these things very casually. Hey, if one guy wants to get married, great. If this guy doesn't want to get married, fine. If, these, if this woman is just filled with passion and wants to get married, cool. If not, great. I think it's better, but no big deal. It's cool. Don't, don't sweat it. And anytime Paul, or really any person, is casual about a thing like that, it means that it doesn't ultimately matter. You hear Paul get intense, and his intensity reflects the value that he has for other things. In this, he goes, it's just not the point. It's just not the point. Now, what is the point? See, there are, there are desires in us. There's a desire for intimacy. There's a desire for commitment. There's a desire for unconditional love. There's a desire for community that reflects who we were made to be, that are inborn desires. And oftentimes we are told or we assume that all of those desires arc towards marriage. So I, I want to have intimacy. I want to have commitment. I want to have unconditional love. I want to experience this community. I want to have shared experience. And we go, well, marriage seems like the path for that. 
And I, I want to just kind of separate those two things for us and say, yes, these things are inborn desires. In fact, they reflect the fact that we are image bearers of God and that God for all eternity has lived in community, that he is triune, three in one, that God has experienced this kind of relational intimacy for all of eternity and for all of time. And he has baked that into our souls in a way that those desires are good but they are also only a hint of, or the relationships that we seek to satisfy those desires are only a hint of the truer, bigger thing. C.S. Lewis, in uh, his essay, The Weight of Glory, which is uh, pretty much my favorite thing Lewis ever wrote, and that's saying something, uh, if you know me, because I think everything he wrote is the best thing he wrote, but Weight of Glory in particular He says this, and it's a bit long, but it's worth our time. He says, in speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I am almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. The secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when in very intimate conversation, the mention of it becomes imminent, we grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves. The secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it is is a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it. And we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that had settled the matter. Wordsworth's expedient was to identify it with certain moments in his own past. But all that is a cheat. If Wordsworth had gone back to those moments in the past, he would not have found the thing itself, but only the reminder of it. What he remembered would turn out to be itself a remembering. The books or the music in which he thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust ourselves to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing these things, the beauty, the memory of our own past are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never visited. All of these desires in us that we try to place on people and things in our lives are all suggesting to us the same thing, that we were, in fact, made for intimate, satisfying relationship, that that's what we were designed for, but that the only way we will ever actually experience that in a way that is satisfying is if we experience it in God himself. And, and here's where I get bogged down in, in, in stuff like that is I, I hear that and I know that that's true. And I think to myself, yeah, but how? Like, how does that actually happen? How does that actually work? How do we actually have the kind of intimate relationship with an invisible God that, that, that would actually satisfy those needs? 
And, and I would go back to this. This is why we talk so much at Icon about spiritual disciplines. Because it is in the cultivation of relationship that we actually find these kinds of satisfying moments. It is only in the consistent putting in of time and work in relationship. And we say this all the time. Our relationship with God is not fundamentally different than our relationship with other human beings. It requires time. It requires attention. It requires knowing and learning and seeking and being curious and asking questions and spending quality time with and listening. This is why we ask every week, what spiritual disciplines are interviewee practices. And almost without exception, all of them have said, well, these are the ones I do, but you know, it's inconsistent and I'm, I'm trying to get better. I'm trying to grow in these areas. And that's true and good and honest. But the kind of relationship that would satisfy these deep, deep desires in us will require work. It will require pursuit. In fact, I would say that if we desire intimacy but are not willing to pursue and kind of do the work that requires intimacy, then we are not prepared for marriage. We will make terrible partners if we are not willing to do the work required to find true intimacy. And so God beckons us, invites us into relationship with him giving us friendships and giving us marriages and giving us, giving us the relationships that are indeed life-giving, but all suggest the deeper and the greater relationship that is on offer with him. But in the same ways that it requires you to have relationship with your spouse by asking questions and spending time and getting to know them and all of the things that real relationships require, the same is required of a relationship with God. In fact, it is the ultimate version of that same thing. So for those of you who are single, don't squander this opportunity, this gift that you have been given, this season of time, whatever it is going to be, however long it is, it is a gift given to you to accomplish great things for the sake of the king and the kingdom and the common good. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for all of the gifts that you give us, the gifts of relationships, the gifts of loneliness, the gift of uh, singleness, and uh, all of it. Or there is nothing that is happening in our lives that you are not using as a tool to make us into the men and women you have made us to be everything about us, every moment of suffering, every moment of prosperity is a tool. It may be a chisel, it may be a hammer, but it is working us. It is changing us, transforming us into who you made us to be. And we thank you for it, even when it hurts, even when we don't understand it. We thank you for it, in Christ's name, amen. Um, now, as always, we'll transition to a time of response, and we'll do this in a couple of different ways. Um, we'll take communion, we'll sing a few more songs, we'll give our offering, we'll do Q&A here in a moment. But before we do any of that, um, we take time each week uh, to think and pray, meditate in silence, uh, because we just don't get very much of that in our lives. And we want to create that space here at church. 
for these ideas to get deep on us and not just to kind of roll off us like so much information does these days. So let's take just a few moments and then I'll come back up to do Q&A. Let's bow our heads together. Let's, um, let's do some questions. Some great questions here. Um, so question number one, how is God's vision of marriage an eternal thing? How does marriage have eternal value? Um, uh, one of the ways I would answer this, there's a lot of ways to answer this question. One of the ways I would say it is, um, I think marriage as, in, uh, as a thing in and of itself uh, I'll say this strongly, uh, it doesn't have eternal value as a thing, right? Um, I think uh, the, the scriptures suggest, and uh, I, I, think it, I think we don't exactly know what Jesus meant uh, about there won't be any giving of marriage in, in heaven. Um, but here's, when, when the scriptures speak positively about marriage and give us a, kind of a larger paradigm for it, it, the purpose of marriage is a couple things. First and foremost, we talked about this uh, two weeks ago in our sexuality message that um, that the whole the first the first point of marriage is to be a picture of the gospel, right? So Paul says this in in uh, Ephesians five that that first and foremost that marriage, the relationship between man and woman, is a uh, is a picture of God's love for His people. That's the first thing. So when he calls husbands to die for their wives, he says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And, and wives, submit to your husbands as the church does to Christ, right? So first and foremost, marriage is a picture of the gospel uh, for each other and for the world. Um, but even more so, again, going back to my main point tonight, like there's nothing that matters more to God than us becoming who God made us to be by means of relationship with him. And marriage is a tool that God uses to shape and form us. And so um, one of the things I didn't say tonight, but uh, had planned to is if you go into marriage expecting to be satisfied, you will be let down. If you go into marriage expecting to be shaped and formed, then you got a shot, right? Because that's what, that, that's what God is. There's this great book, uh, a marriage book, and the sub, I can't even remember what the title of the book is, but the subtitle I always really liked, which was, what if God, what if God created marriage to make us holy, not happy? And I think that is 100% the case, that it is a tool that God uses. And I'm making it sound like it's a, it's a means and, and not an end. And I would say to a degree, it is a means and not an end. Marriage is not an end unto itself. It's not the goal. It's not the, the purpose for which you were made. It is a good thing that God has given us that has many wonderful benefits. And I love being married. Don't get me wrong. But it's not an ultimate thing. Uh, question two, regarding singleness being choosy and choosable is noble and commendable, but what if someone remains single their whole life? What good do you believe their preparedness has done? It has done great good for you because you're preparing, you're, you're being choosable. That, that you know, commendable, noble idea is, in terms of the question 
is shaping you to become the person God's made you to be, which I've said several times now, is Paul's presupposition. That the whole point is that uh, you are to become who God made you to be by means of relationship with him. And so that work of becoming the kind of person that is the kind of person who would be willing to submit and be willing to die, be willing to give your life to someone else is the process of sanctification. And so that's kind of, it kind of was my point. Like that work is in itself a great good. In fact, points you towards the ultimate good of why God created you and what God's doing in the world to shape you in that way. So that becoming choosable, to use that word, uh, is the work of sanctification. And that's the work that God has put before us. Uh, Number three, what are the implications for Christian dating in today's culture? What about using dating apps? Is using an app, quote, just trying to fill the hole in your heart and and a lack of contentment in singleness? Um, I mean, maybe. Um, depends on the app, probably. Um, um, I, I mean... I, I, there's no rule against using apps to meet people and, and do all that kind of stuff. I do think that there, uh, you know, there is a, a, a built-in limitation to using an app to meet a person, um, and that limitation is the information that the app requires of you in order to make said connection right? Like if all it is is the picture of a person and then you'd start swiping, uh, I would submit to you the criteria you're using to choose someone is not the criteria that is going to kind of correlate with a great relationship in which you are entering in to die for the other person and to give up your life and all of those kinds of things. Uh, You know, great eyes don't uh, correlate with... uh, uh, you know, that kind of behavior. So uh, it's not that the apps themselves are the problem. It's not even that the culture itself is the problem. But I do think you have to ask yourself the question like, okay, what, what am I looking for? And maybe even start before that to make sure in your own heart you're going like, what do I believe marriage is? Start there. Do that work on your own. Don't take my word for it. Do, do that work for yourself. Study the scriptures, learn, think about, man, why does God put people together? What's the point of that? Why would we do it forever? What's the point of marriage? Do that work and then let that flow into how you choose a, a partner, how you choose a spouse. You go, okay, if this is what marriage is, then this is the kind of person that I need. And if this is the kind of person that I need, how do I find that person? And then there's a lot of different ways you can find that person. And maybe apps are good for that. Maybe they're not. Uh, I don't know, but they're definitely not. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is a great question. What about uh, Christian cohabitation, in quotes, which I didn't know that was a quotable thing. I like it. Uh, in this expensive housing market, people argue it's just financially prudent for people to move in together and that living together is how people figure out if they would work as a couple. What's a gospel response to this? That's a fantastic question. Very practical uh, problem here, which is a a crazy expensive housing market. Um, I would argue there's a lot of ways around practical uh, things like like expensive housing markets. Uh, Roommates uh, would be a great alternative as well. So I'm not sure, uh, again, if we want to make good decisions, we have to start with good presuppositions, right? And then we build a series of kind of questions, just 
like I said, what is marriage? What's the point of it? Therefore, what am I looking for? Therefore, how do I go look for them? And, and uh, therefore is, therefore, how do we know? How do I know if this is the right person? And I know a lot of the logic is, uh, hey, you should move in together first and then figure it out. Well, uh, I get the logic there. The data doesn't back it up at all, right? Like if you cohabitate, you're far more likely to get divorced than otherwise. Now, that's skewed by the fact that um, most of the people cohabitating are not Christians and are probably entering into marriages with different presuppositions, so are more likely to get divorced because that's not a big deal for them, okay? So the data is hard to understand that way. Uh, But I would say this. Um, if, if you go into a relationship uh, and you go begin to live together um, with the purpose of figuring out if this is the right person for you, you'll figure out pretty quickly they're not. Uh, because there's not a person you can live with that you walk in and go, oh, this is great all the time, and this is definitely the right thing. Um, if you, it almost presupposes um, an order that says, um, okay, I'm going to find out if you're good for me, and if you're not good for me, then we're going to part our own ways, rather than saying, of course, when we talked about this last week, the reason that there's no mis- perfect other person for you is because of you. Like, there is no perfect person for you because that's an impossibility. You're a puzzle piece that doesn't fit anything uh, because you're deeply flawed just like the rest of us, right? So the idea of Mr. Right is, makes no sense because you're not Mrs. Right and you never will be and vice versa, okay? So a, a gospel-formed approach to this same idea is to say, I'm a deeply broken human being, made in the image of God, but deeply broken and in need of redemption and in need of help and in need of God and in need of other people, and so are they, and so we're gonna figure this thing out together. So when I do premarital with people, I always tell them, what you gotta do is find someone you can fight with and fight well. Because if you don't fight well, it's gonna be a trouble. It's not a question of find someone you don't fight with. That's impossible. Everyone fights. It's finding someone you can fight well with, that you can communicate well with, that you can have grace with, that you guys don't fight dirty, that you, you know, all the stuff that you can do real life with and do conflict with. So um, a gospel-formed understanding of marriage is to say, I'm broken, they're broken, and we're committed to figuring this thing out. That's why marriage comes first, because it's an unconditional covenant modeled by God. This is, we talked about this a little bit last week. Somebody asked, like, how, how long do you wait? How long do you hold out hope that uh, a spouse is going to stick around? And the answer is forever, because the very first thing about marriage is that it, it's modeling God's relationship to the church. And there's not a point at which God quits on the church. Thank God, Right? So because there is no point at which God quits on the church, there's no point at which a husband quits on a wife or vice versa, right? Because first and foremost, it's, it's designed to model the gospel. So uh, a gospel form response to this idea is to say, we don't kind of test the waters to go, oh, okay. Now, of course, there, we do date. We're not arranging marriages, though I will for you if you want me to. Um, uh, because I couldn't do it any worse than you do it, <laughs> you know? Okay, next question. Last question. Um, how can we encourage our Christian single friends who despair in their singleness and are desperately seeking relationships? Um, it, it's a really, really great question because what can be lost in all of this is um, the emotional 
uh, pain and hurt, uh, rejection and longing and all of those things that are very real. Paul, Paul says, like, listen, if, if, gosh, if marriage is something you just like desire so much and you meet somebody and you want to get married, great. Like, that's not bad. That's good, right? Like, get married. That's, that's great. God will do a lot of things through that, right? So I, I think a couple of things. I would say one, um, you know, despair is a strong word. And, and, and I would say uh, anytime, anytime you experience a really strong emotion about something, like an outsized emotional response, you, you got to ask yourself some serious questions about why. Like why, if indeed it, despair is the right way to describe what you're feeling, like why is it that deep? Are you, are you hoping for something? Are you needing something uh, that 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 will never be satisfied because uh, if that's where you are, I would never counsel someone who is despairing about their singleness if they meet someone to jump into relationship because that's not a healthy place from which to enter into relationship. Deep contentment, satisfaction, and purpose in your singleness is the best place from which to enter into marriage. Despair and longing and and all of that uh, is is a, a place of desperation that that, that makes, uh, I would suggest, probably means some unresolved identity stuff happening that uh, is not prepared to enter into marriage. Um, how do we help our, our friends in this? Um, I think the best way to help your friend is to uh, counsel them in the gospel, to ask them gospel questions. Hey, what, what, let's back this up, right? One of the phrases uh, a pastor friend of mine uses is fruit to root, right? So start with the, the fruit or the outcome of the behavior and back it up to what is the root of that behavior. So you're despairing or depressed about this. Okay, well, let's get back to like the, the kind of core identity stuff around this and ask good questions to go, okay, but why? Okay, but why? What's underneath that? What's underneath that? And probably at the heart of it is some deep pain and longing and rejection and hurt that that needs to be dealt with in a healthy way so that then it can grow outwards again towards health and relationship. So, um, I, you know, in a situation like this where you're just preaching, it can all feel very like logical and, and I know I, I do it that way anyway, but... Um, the, we're talking about real people with real hurt and real relationships and, and real hard stuff. And so the best way we can do that on a one-on-one basis or in community uh, is to get to the heart of these things and ask good questions that peel back the layers. Um, does that make sense? Okay. Um, let me pray for us and then we'll kind of transition into communion and the rest. Jesus, uh, we know that our, our hope is in you, uh, we know that, and, and we believe it most days and most time, but it's hard. It's hard to believe that all the time, and there's so many things around us that we want and that seem good and seem uh, healthy, and, and we put hope in them, and, and they are good, uh, but they probably can't do what we're trying to ask them to do. And so, Lord, I, I pray that we would, we would lean on you for the things that only you can do, that we would enjoy your gifts um, but go to you as God. And that we would take the time and, and invest uh, the time that it requires to really um, know you and experience you and, and, uh, and the intimate relationship that you offer us, Lord. So um, 
Help us to grow in, in all of these areas to, that we as a community, uh, our, our married people would support our singles, our singles would support our married people because at the end of the day, we're all here to do the same thing, to become the image bearers of God you've made us to be by means of relationship with you. And, and that, that's it. That's what all of us are doing. And you've given some of us right now the gift of marriage and some of us the gift of singleness. All of it is a gift for the sake of knowing you better and becoming who you made us to be. So pray that we as, as an icon community would support each other uh, in these things. In Christ's name we pray, amen.